from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. You can find this program and every program at TonyPerkins.com. encourage you to do so. Also, you can find Tony at Gabbit at Tony underscore Perkins. encourage you to do that as well. Also, download the Stand Firm app on the Apple Store and Google Play, and you can find all the resources from FRC directly to your phone, including every episode of Washington Watch. Today on the program, we are going to discuss whether the federal government can force a Christian school to open up their facilities, their locker rooms, their bathrooms, their showers to uh, members of the opposite sex. At least one federal judge has said so about a school in Missouri, College of the Ozarks. We're going to discuss that with their lawyer from the Alliance Defending Freedom a little bit later. Then we are also going to discuss one year after the George Floyd case, What have we learned? Has anything improved? We'll talk about that a little later in the program. We're going to end today's show with Carl Truman, who has written a really important book that answers, that probes the question, why is it that we now believe that people think it's possible to be born into the wrong body? He explores that in his book, and we're going to discuss that with him. But to start the program... U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Anthony Blinken announced today a $112 million package of assistance for Palestinians and other humanitarian projects in Gaza in the aftermath of the 11-day conflict between Israel and Hamas. Earlier in the day, met with Mahmoud Abbas, who President Biden last said is should be recognized as the leader of the Palestinian people. Secretary Blinken also met the day before with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who had said this during their joint press conference. We discussed many regional issues, but none is greater than Iran. And I can tell you that I hope that the United States will not go back to the old JCPOA, because we believe that that deal paves uh, the way for Iran to have an arsenal of uh, nuclear weapons with international legitimacy. With me now to talk about all of it is Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, former commander of the U.S. Army's Delta Force and now FRC's Executive Vice President. General, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joseph. It's good to be all with you. Well, we're glad to have you. Important week in Israel right now. Secretary Blinken is there. He had a press conference. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu also spoke. What are your thoughts on what's happening there, on what uh, Secretary Blinken had to say today? I think Secretary Blinken talked out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, On the one hand, he uh, talked about how they had uh, negotiated this ceasefire and that they were all in. They were totally supportive of Israel. And then he turned right around and talked about rejoining the JCPOA which, you know, the greatest enemy that Israel has is Iran. Iran was behind all of this unrest in there. Iran was the ones that were were stoking the fire. And uh, and then he talks about they're going to rejoin the JCPOA. I mean, that's uh, that's duplicitous at best. And then he he talked about uh, uh, reconstruction. He used that word, reconstruction, several times talking about the Gaza Strip. And But he said, but we're... We're not going to uh, deal with Hamas. Well, what? 
I mean, think about it. Hamas controls the Gaza Strip. Do you really think that you can put over $100 million in there and it's not, a, a, the significant portion of it is not going to wind up in the hands of Hamas? They're in charge. They are the people that run the place. And so there were several things that he said that I thought were just very duplicitous. Well, we just heard comments from uh, Benjamin Netanyahu where he expressed his desire that the United States not reenter the JCPOA. Do you think that issue is going to strain relationships between uh, the U.S. and Israel? There is no question about it. it. It strained relationships when it was first signed in the Obama administration. And look, when Donald Trump came in and pulled out of the JCPOA, I, I've got to tell you, there was re- rejoicing in the streets of, ter- of uh, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Uh, because that was such a bad thing to strengthen the enemies of our closest allies in that part of the world. Now, Secretary Blinken is going to be in Israel for three days. What do you think he's hoping to accomplish during his time there? Well, I, I hope that he's he is uh, going to use this time wisely to really reassure the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the Knesset there that uh, America really is going to support them. They're going to they're going to replenish the uh, the warheads that have been used with the Iron Dome. Uh, they're going to provide them with uh, additional material that they might need because this is going to happen again. There's going to be another attack there. But if he's going to be there and talk to Mr. Netanyahu about negotiating a peace treaty or a two-state solution, he is wasting his time. That is not going to happen. There is no two-state solution. Uh, And even though there's no way that that could be successful, he said in his news conference that we're committed to a two-state solution. So I hope he doesn't waste his time doing that, but that indeed he he really does assure Benjamin Netanyahu and the Knesset, that we we really are their allies and we're going to stand with them. Now, in this scenario, you have the the Iran and the JCPOA and their relationship with Hamas in in Palestine. And then you have Israel and the United States um, helping them build this Iron Dome. Do you think it's accurate to say that the U.S. is essentially on both sides of this conflict, basically funding Hamas through Iran, through the JCPOA, as well as funding Israel and the Iron Dome, which is shooting down all those rockets from Hamas? I think you're spot on. I think that's exactly the case. And keep in mind, too, it is not just Hamas. Hamas is, is bad, but you've also got Fatah. That's a, while it hasn't been declared by the U.S. State Department as a terrorist organization, it is. And that's Mahmoud Abbas. And Mahmoud Abbas, if you, if, you, if you take a close look at him, he followed in the footsteps of Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat was one of the most corrupt men in, in the history of the Middle East. And he died with something like a couple of billion dollars in his accounts. And, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas is, is a, almost a clone of him. He's a corrupt man. And uh, there, it, it is not in his best interest for there to be a peace negotiation or a peace treaty of any kind or a two-state solution because he he will lose his relevance if that happens. Well, and President Biden had some things to say about uh, President Abbas this week, and I want to listen to that clip and then give you a chance to respond to that. What I've made clear is that it's essential. It's essential that the Palestinians in on the West Bank 
be secured, that Abbas be recognized as a leader of the Palestinian people, which he is. I know you're having some sound issues, but essentially what President Biden said is that it's important that President Abbas be recognized as the leader of the Palestinian people. Now, we know Hamas is also there. Is, is that the right position to take for the U.S.? Should they try to go through Abbas or should they be negotiating with Hamas, who, based on the recent conflict, seems to have a lot of influence and maybe arguably more public support than President Abbas does? I think that what he needs to do is accept reality. There are two different Palestinian elements there. One is in Judea and Samaria, and the other one is in the Gaza Strip. And they are not necessarily friends, but they're not unified in any way. And uh, and, and they have actually had little skirmishes between them. But we need to recognize that when you start uh, talking about negotiating any kind of peace uh, or settlement, you're negotiating only with Fatah, which is in Judea and Samaria, otherwise known as the West Bank. You're not negotiating with Hamas down in the Gaza Strip. And what does Hamas do? Whenever there's negotiations like that with Mahmoud Abbas, they fire rockets over into Israel to disrupt whatever peace negotiations or settlements are are taking place there. So there's no unity between... There's not a unified... Palestinian people, they're, they're, they have different interests, and they don't. It's not in their best interest to come together because of the corruption in both on both sides. There, given that you think there's no interest on the Palestinian side for peace, that it's not in their best interest, do you have any hope for this ceasefire? Is this going to endure? This is the fourth time that they've had a war in Gaza. It will happen again. Yeah. It is not. This is not going to be a lasting peace. It could be a year. Could be two years. But it's going to happen again, and that's what they do. But the one thing that came out of this, they destroyed all those tunnels. They destroyed about yeah. sixty miles of tunnels out of Gaza that went into Israel that were there just to support their attacks on the Israeli people, and that is one of the good things that has come out of this. But I hope we're not. Yeah. We don't contribute to rebuilding those tunnels. One of the unique things about this particular ceasefire is it was negotiated, brokered by Egypt. Yes, that's right. Is that significant? Do you think that matters? It is significant. And you go back and, and stop and think of, of, of when the uh, when the British, I mean, when the uh, Egyptian prime minister going all the way back to Menachem Begin, or not Menachem Begin, but the... Oh, now I can't remember his name, but he, he actually went to Israel. He was the first president of Egypt to actually go to Israel. And uh, and that was a significant uh, period of time there where the relations between them, the uh, the Jews in Israel, and the Muslims in, in Egypt uh, really kind of closed ranks. And uh, it was a very significant period there. So I think that the fact that this was brokered by uh, Abdel el-Sisi, the president of Egypt, I think that is very significant. And it also shows, uh, I think, how late our president was to the game. Now, Egypt and several countries had, had normalized relations with Israel during the Biden administration. 
Is there um, – do you think that matters in, in this? Is the neighborhood cooling down a little bit, even if the Palestinian-Israeli thing it continues to, to, to boil? Um, is there hope that the, there might be peer pressure, that in general the area is becoming more peaceful? Well, I think one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons for this was to try and disrupt this whole Abraham Accord to where you have these five Muslim nations that have signed a peace treaty with Israel. I think part of what this was about was trying to disrupt it, put them in a position where they had to choose sides. And uh, thus far, we haven't heard anything uh, that would confirm that that's what they were thinking. But uh, I I think that... uh, these Abraham Accords have to be protected, and I wish our president had acted much quicker and had come down very firmly in terms of the American support for Israel. We love all people, to include the Palestinians, but Israel, we have to stand with them because it's a biblical mandate. Yeah, less than one minute. Very quickly, do you think recent developments will change the U.S.'s position with respect to Iran? Will they still get back in the JCPOA? they will and I believe they will because Donald Trump pulled out of it and and this administration has reversed everything that Donald Trump did and I think for that reason if nothing else they will try to get back in politics is everything general boy thank you so much for thank your time you, for general. joining us today now come back we are going to talk about whether religious schools can be forced by the Biden administration whether Christian schools can be forced by the Biden administration to allow opposite sex members into different sex showers. We'll talk about it after the break. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org slash explainer. That's frc.org slash explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? 
Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Last week, a federal judge denied a request to halt enforcement of a federal directive that forces religious schools to include single-sex housing facilities to open single-sex housing facilities to members of the opposite sex. And this includes dorm rooms and shower rooms. So while this lawsuit moves forward, The College of the Ozarks in Missouri and other religious schools like it could face fines easily amounting to six figures in addition to punitive damages and attorney's fees. Violations can even put someone in jail. So what's next for the school? And what does it mean for other organizations and companies? With me now to talk about this is Ryan Banger, Senior Counsel and the VP for Legal Strategy at Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing College of the Ozarks. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joseph. Great to be here. So glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about where this controversy came from. What is it the Biden administration did that led to this issue? Well, the Biden administration on the first day, January 20th, issued an executive order, number 13988, that dictated to all federal agencies that statutes, regulations, any federal law that prohibited discrimination based on sex must be interpreted by the federal government, by all the federal agencies, by all the bureaucrats, to prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. So this was a significant shift, a significant change in the way the federal government has interpreted sex discrimination uh, statutes. And this is what drove the Housing and Urban Development Department, HUD, to, on February 11th, issue the directive that's at the center of this lawsuit. And that directive interprets the Fair Housing Act, which is a longstanding federal statute that prohibits discrimination in housing on, among other things, the basis of sex, to include prohibitions on gender identity discrimination. Now, when you play that out, what that does is it prohibits schools like College of the Ozarks from having single-sex dormitories where where uh, men who identify as women who are, who are transgender uh, from from not living in the female dorms. That's ultimately the result of that of that interpretation. Well, I will just say that. College of the Ozarks is actually one of my favorite colleges in America. And if parents out there, if you're looking for a great place for your kids, think about College of the Ozarks. It really is a fabulous place. And you you file the lawsuit on their behalf, seeking an injunction against this new rule. But you did not prevail. What was the judge's argument? 
Well, first off, you're absolutely right. The College of the Ozarks is a fantastic place. Uh, it's been around for over 100 years. Uh, everything they do is really centered on uh, Christian values. And that's what informs the policy that the College of the Ozarks has of separating men and women into separate dorms. Uh, so it's very much an outgrowth of the College of the Ozarks religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. To your second question, what did the judge, what did Judge Keshmark say? Uh, well, she has not issued a written ruling yet. But at the hearing from the bench, uh, which means when she is, is speaking after the arguments are concluded, she said that she was going to deny the motion that we had filed for a preliminary injunction on a couple of different bases, uh, one of which is she just didn't believe that, in her view, the case was uh, justiciable. Now, that's a big word. That's a legal word. What that means is uh, she agreed with the government that this letter, this directive, nothing to see here. This is the way we've always done it. This is just simply a implementation of the Supreme Court's ruling in Bostock. It's not going to make any difference to schools like College of the Ozarks. But the reality is the government is just prevaricating. The government is simply uh, sort of playing a shell game here with us. And it's a very, very common tactic that the government uses in cases like this to get to get them thrown out and dismissed. So we're going to be taking this up on appeal uh, because there's, it's very clear that the directive specifically mandates and requires that federal agencies that enforce the Fair Housing Act require everyone who's subject to the act, including College of the Ozarks, not to discriminate based on gender identity. That's baked right there into the directive. And it's called a directive on its face, not a suggestion, not a you know recommendation. It's a directive. And it was issued to all the federal enforcement agencies. Like you pointed out, they have authority to issue fines up to six figures. Does the uh, the does the directive only cover colleges and universities that take federal funding from students, or would it apply to all institutions? It's not dependent on receipt of federal funds because the Fair Housing Act applies regardless of whether you receive federal money. Fair Housing Act applies if you are providing a dwelling place for sale or for rent, and of course, a dormitory is a dwelling place. It's some place that someone will live for uh, at least a length of time. And so it applies to colleges and universities regardless of whether or not they receive federal funds. So effectively, there is no way to escape the coverage of this directive. Is is that correct? No religious exemption. You can't uh, disentangle yourself financially from the federal government. This applies to everyone, regardless of your history, regardless of your beliefs, regardless of how you conduct yourself. It does apply universally across the board if you're a university providing dormitories. Now, there are, there's a very narrow exception in the Fair Housing Act that does apply as a co-religionist exception. Uh, but that's, that's something that uh, is really not an issue here. Uh, now, there is an exception in Title IX, which governs education institutions that receive federal funding. But the Title IX exception applies to Title IX. We're talking about Title VIII, which is the Fair Housing Act. So all these different exceptions, and the government threw these arguments out at at the oral argument, they just don't apply here. So the answer is there's universal application, and there's no clear exception. Now, Ryan, we've got one minute. So very quickly, what is your argument on appeal? How do you get this rule struck down? It's exactly what we argued at the district court. The government issued a final rule, and that final rule is binding on all the federal enforcement agencies, and it makes a difference. It has real-world effects on schools like the College of the Ozarks. Ultimately, 
if it were to play out, it would force the schools to a choice. Either abandon your religious beliefs and allow transgender students, allow males to live in female dorms, or suffer, suffer the penalties. Ryan Banger, Alliance Defending Freedom, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you especially to you and everyone at the Alliance Defending Freedom for taking up these cases at no charge to them to defend our freedom. We do greatly appreciate you and your service to our country and to all of us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jessica. And we will continue to track this case because this is critical to all of us. Uh, It's colleges and universities now, but it's coming for a church near you. It's coming for a Christian high school, a Christian lower school near you, which is why it's really, really, really important uh, that the federal government not be able to do this. Now, coming up, today is the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. Have we made it? Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. And today marks the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. And while the milestone has prompted further calls for police reform, some are saying that not enough is being done or done regarding crime in America. In fact, the anti-police sentiment that we've seen over the past year has resulted, perhaps, in increased crime. Are there bigger problems that people in America are overlooking right now? With me now to talk about this and more is Bishop E.W. Jackson, Senior President and Founder of Stand Foundation. Bishop Jackson, welcome to Washington Watch. 
Thank you for having me. Well, we are glad to have you. And, and this is a significant day in light of the national conversation over race that has been going certainly not for the last year, but for the last couple of hundred years. But tell me, as you reflect on the events of the last year, what have you learned Well, what I've learned is that there is an effort in our country to use race as a tool of manipulation and indoctrination rather than illumination, frankly, uh, of the issue. Because I really believe that America is a wonderful place to live. Are we a perfect country? No. But we are doing a study right now. My organization is on the deaths of children around America. We are up to 85 dead children slain in inner cities across the country since the beginning of 2020. And you know what? No days to celebrate their deaths. There are no no parades, no protests. Their pictures aren't being put up. And yet we've decided that we're going to turn a man, and I should, he shouldn't have died. It was tragic. It was horrible. I think every American who's rational agrees with that. But the man was a fentanyl addict. He was a meth addict. He was passing counterfeit bills. And while we certainly mourn his death and we believe that Chauvin got justice, he is not a civil rights icon. And it's just sad that that's the way this is now being used. And if you don't go along with that somehow, you're not you're not woke. You're not you, you don't quite understand the struggle. I understand innocent people are dying across this country who have done nothing They've done nothing except be in the wrong place at the wrong time when gunfire erupts among these gangs and we don't pay any attention to their deaths whatsoever. And I think that's because this is not about saving black lives. It is about advancing a Marxist agenda. Now, specifically with respect to George Floyd, we all watched the conviction that Derek Chauvin got. Do you think that has helped to create a sense of closure, justice in this case that will help this this issue broadly moving forward? No, no, because that's if if the point really were justice for George Floyd and his family, I think they got twenty seven million dollars, twenty six, twenty seven million dollars. Derek Chauvin was convicted. If the point was really justice for them, you could say, well, you know, we did the best we could to, to to satisfy the demands of justice. But that's not really what the issue is. Now, maybe for his family, it is. But I think for the for Black Lives Matter and other other uh, radicals who are pushing this, the issue is really and they immediately said it as soon as Chauvin was convicted. Well, this doesn't bring closure because it won't be closure until we get rid of systemic racism and blah, 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 blah. So what they were saying is, no, that this doesn't satisfy anything, just like electing the first black president didn't change anything, because here again, the issue is to fundamentally change America, uh, not to, to simply improve or, as the, the uh, preamble says, not to simply make us a more perfect union, but frankly, to create disunion so that you can remake it uh, with some sort of socialist uh, totalitarian state of some kind that I think they really love to have where your First Amendment rights are curtailed, your Second Amendment rights are curtailed, and basically the government controls everything and everybody. Uh, and that, and therein lies the real issue, not, not the death of George Floyd, which every American, I think, pretty much agrees should not have happened. 
I, I certainly everyone agrees with you that the last point that the death of George Floyd should not have happened. But those who are watching the response and the, the larger conversation about race who are concerned, who think, well, we're not perfect, but we're not terrible and we don't want to tear this whole thing down. What do you think is the correct way for people to respond to this who, who might want to say, you know, it's not an entirely racist country. We shouldn't necessarily eliminate the police, but I'm not a racist and I don't want to be accused of being a racist. How should people respond to this conversation and these news stories? I think you've got to get to the underlying issue. Look, I'm an American of African ancestry. My ancestors were slaves and sharecroppers in Orange County, Virginia. I love this country. I'm proud of my country. I know it's not a perfect place, but I also know the world is not a perfect place. And America was born into a sinful and fallen world. But I think we've done more than any other nation that's ever existed to advance the cause of liberty and free uh, liberty and opportunity and to raise the standard of living for anybody who is willing to take advantage of the opportunities this country offers. I think we've got to call this out for what it is. I think underlying it is a Marxist worldview that has substituted racial conflict for class warfare. And no matter what you do, see, that's the problem. No matter what we do as a country, those who are interested in fundamentally transforming the nation will never be satisfied. So I think we've got to call that out and say, yes, we want to be a fair country for every single American, but we're not going to become a socialist country. That's not the answer. And that's what this stuff is pushing. And that's what I agree with, not the call for justice. I don't disagree with the call for justice. I disagree with the call to make us a collectivist socialist nation of some kind. Bishop Jackson. Appreciate you very much taking the time to join us. You are a fair man in a fair country. Appreciate your time very much. Thank you, sir. And we will continue to track this story. Just like he said, the solution, are you changing the problem or are you fixing the problem? We do want to solve the problem of racism, um, but we don't want to have the solution be worse than the problem, which uh, in many ways is what's being proposed. Coming up. How did America get to the point where homosexuality and transgenderism have become so normal? We're going to talk about it with a historian right after the break. Don't go away. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. 
The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. American culture is in the midst of a sexual revolution. Homosexuality has been normalized, and now there's a push to normalize transgenderism. How did culture in the West reach the point where it's at today? Well, my next guest has written a book that analyzes the history and context of the sexual revolution. He says, quote, the changes we have witnessed since the 1960s are symptomatic of deeper changes in how we think of the purpose of life, the meaning of happiness, and what actually constitutes people's sense of who they are and what they are. With me to talk about this is Dr. Carl Truman, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College and author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Dr. Truman, welcome to Washington Watch. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to have you. I really, uh, I, though I'm hosting, I'm really just kind of a fanboy right now because I have, I have and read your book and appreciate it very much, and I do think it is a must-read, uh, which is why I wanted to have you on today to talk about this because for those of us who have been confused about the world that we live in today, I think you do a really wonderful uh, service to all of us of providing some context that takes something that does seem um, kind of chaotic and, and bringing some sense to it. And in introducing your book, you talk about your grandfather, who you say would not recognize a world in which people say with a straight face that they were born into the wrong body. Why is it that uh, he would be confused by that statement in his life, but so many people today are not? Well, it's a good question, and I think it points us to the speed at which a lot of these things have happened. It's it's hard to believe that it was only 2015 when Obergefell v. Hodges uh, sanctioned gay marriage as part of the Constitution. We seem to be living in a very different world now. And I think one of the temptations as a result of that is to, to think that things are 
accelerating and spinning out of control. What I try to do in the book, of course, is, is to explain that it took a long time to get here. And although my grandfather would have been very confused by that statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the kind of things that society has to come to believe are plausible were actually already in place uh, during the latter half of the 20th century. And what we're seeing now really is the, the radical uh, outworking of things that human beings, at least human beings in the West, have taken as normal and believed for many, many generations. Now, you talk about the sexual revolution um, in, in, in great detail and in kind of what it has done and how it has progressed. What are its triumphs and how has it moved along this progression to where we are today? Yes, another very good question. I think the triumph of the sexual revolution is, well, often Christians and conservatives tend to think about the sexual revolution as, as being an expansion of the range of acceptable sexual behaviors, an expansion in the notion of what is and is not sexually moral. In fact, I think the sexual revolution, the real triumph of the sexual revolution is that it has completely overthrown the notion of sexual morality in its entirety. You may have noticed in the last couple of days, a school, I think, in Florida has got into trouble for doctoring pictures that it regarded as immodest of, of certain women at the school in the, in the yearbook, certain students in the yearbook. It's a fascinating example of the kind of thing I talk about in the book because one of the things I say in the book is that the sexual revolution uh, doesn't expand notions of things like modesty. It entirely abolishes them. And the way the media have leapt on to the school and, and parodied them and presented them as ridiculous for simply wanting to maintain a basic level of what, again, my grandfather would have regarded as modesty, is emblematic of the triumph of the sexual revolution, that it has not simply expanded traditional sexual morality to encompass uh, uh, other behaviors, other identities. What it has done is it has overthrown the idea of sexual morality in its entirety, as we see, for example, in the fact that, that modesty now is a ridiculous concept. Why has that been important to the sexual revolution? When you, Why is it important for them not to just say, well, some your standard of modesty is unreasonable or too conservative? Why is it important for the sexual revolution to have entirely eliminated the idea that modesty is even uh, a goal worth having? Yes, uh, it's predicated, I think, on a completely different uh, notion of freedom to that which traditional religious conservatives would have. Uh, for me, I believe there is such a thing as human nature, and I find my freedom and I flourish by identifying what human nature is and behaving in accordance with my human nature. The sexual revolution is predicated on the idea that every person is able to invent themselves, invent what makes them flourish for themselves. The net result of that in the political sphere, of course, is that if I try to impose my notion of human nature or if I try to impose my notion of morality on society as a whole, if I try to make that normative, I'm actually engaged in an act of oppression. I'm actually preventing somebody from being fully free. So the very idea that society would have any notion of modesty is inherently oppressive in a situation where 
essentially we've come to identify individual freedom and specifically sexual freedom with that which allows the individual to be authentic and to flourish. You mentioned the idea of oppression there, and, and you talk about that at some length in your, in your book and how oppression used to be understood as something like slavery or apartheid or some kind of caste system where people were denied rights based on their their class membership or their group membership of some kind. But now oppression has become the, something that's more psychological, where simply an, the expression of an idea, exposure to an idea, is, is perceived and defined as oppression. Why is that important to what the sexual revolution has managed to pull off? Yeah, again, you're asking very, very good questions. Um, that's That goes to the heart of, of the issue, I think. For my grandfather, if I'd said to gra my grandfather, you know, Granddad, what is oppression? He would have said to me, it's not being able to find a job. It's not being able to get paid a fair day's wage for an honest day's work. It would have been very material. It would have been something in some sense one could point to and say, that is oppression. But, of course, my grandfather's notion of selfhood, my grandfather's notion of what it meant to be him, was really uh, related to others. My grandfather's notion of selfhood required him to be able to provide for other people. It was outwardly directed. It was all about him being able to put bread on the table for his family and, and shoes on their feet. We live in a world where that's not the notion of selfhood we operate with anymore. The notion of selfhood we have now is a highly psychologized one. For me to flourish is for me to have an inner sense of psychological contentment and happiness. It's for me to, if you like, feel good. And therefore, the existence of anything that prevents me from feeling good becomes oppressive. And that's why we have you know, battles over, for example, uh, baking cakes for gay weddings. Uh, a Christian conservative might uh, look at that and say, well, the, the baker has the right to uh, work and operate in accordance with his religious principles. And it's a trivial thing not to bake a cake for a gay wedding. Gay couple, of course, see that as an oppressive act because what the baker is doing is he's refusing to legitimize uh, the path uh, of, of life they have chosen. He's re refusing to affirm them in their lifestyle choices. And in a psychological world, that's oppressive. The idea that there's somebody out there who disapproves of me, that becomes very, very important in a world where my own inner sense, my own inner feelings are the be-all and end-all. You also make the point that 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 harm to the psychological self by simply refusing to affirm someone's chosen identity has actually been used at the Supreme Court as as a site of harm or a denial of dignity. And, and the Supreme Court has claimed for itself the role of we have to provide dignity to members of our society, and therefore we will make rulings based on our our job as providing dignity, which means, as they are now understanding, they are now interpreting it specifically in Obergefell and in other cases as well, which means we have to prevent people and we have to make from doing things that would harm other, somebody else's psychological self or uh, feel this sense of, of, of or a lack of acceptance. How does the psychological self, which is really at the root of the sexual revolution, differ from the Judeo-Christian understanding of the self? 
Well, it differs in, in, in very significant ways. I think fundamentally it differs in, in the idea that human nature has a moral structure. We could put it rather simplistically and say, you know, the world is divided between those who think that uh, human beings are nothing more than the chemicals they are made up of, and therefore their wills are free to, 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 to make themselves into anything they wish. Anything that works for you, anything that makes you feel happy is by definition moral. And then there are those, and I would put the Judeo-Christian worldview uh, in, into this camp, there are those who think that human beings are more than the chemicals they are made up from, that human nature, if you like, is not just a genome. It's not just a chemical compound. It's something that has a moral structure. And uh, human beings uh, find their flourishing, they find their being, they find their authenticity in conforming to that given structure. Uh, and that's, I think, where we see the, you know, the sexual revolution crashing against uh, the, the Judeo-Christian worldview because the sexual revolution essentially says there is no moral structure human nature. Whatever works, whatever gives you pleasure, whatever makes you feel good is by definition legitimate. The Judeo-Christian view wants to say no, no. And, and of all things, sex that speaks to the nature of what a human being is. Of all things, sex has to be set within a moral structure in order for it to, to fulfill its proper purpose. So the sexual revolution really is the, the latest iteration of a strongly anti-Christian approach to human nature. In your book, you do a really thorough and helpful job of kind of tracking the origin of these ideas. Rousseau, Marx, uh, Darwin even, and then Freud, who you just mentioned. Why do you think it's important for Christians who care about this issue and this movement and a Christian response in the culture to understand the origin of the movement that we're dealing with? Yeah, <clears throat> well... First of all, most of the people who are committed to the sexual revolution have never read these people. You know, my, my narrative that I tell is what you might call a fairly elite narrative looking at texts that a lot of people have not read. The advantage we get from reading these texts, the advantage we get from addressing these various thinkers and from reflecting on them, is we come to understand the philosophical background and implications of the many things that many of us now find to be intuitive in the culture around us. And understanding that background, understanding that framework, I think allows us to engage it at a more sophisticated level. It's one thing to, to intuitively feel that something's true. When you self-consciously reflect upon the idea, you begin to see its implications. You begin to see, in many ways, its incoherences. Uh, for example, Rousseau says that you know, man is born free and everywhere is in chains, and that is the, the assumption, ultimately, of, of the revolution culminating in the sexual revolution that Rousseau initiates. When you push it back to that principle, it's self-evidently untrue. Man is born utterly dependent upon his parents. Uh, human beings are not born free. They are born as dependent, rational animals. And I think coming to understand that helps us to start building an intellectual case and living our lives in a manner which uh, contradicts and refutes uh, the kind of stuff that the culture is trying to push on us from, from outside. 
Do you think it's helpful for those who are tempted to despair as they look around and see what's happened to the world in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Is it helpful to kind of understand the context and realize, well, these ideas may not be brand new. Maybe this isn't the most depraved civilization that has ever existed. Yes, I mean, I think the temptation to despair is always there, particularly at a time of dramatic social change. Many evangelicals in America feel that uh, something that belongs to them is being stolen from them. And there's a tendency to overreact. There's a tendency to despair in such situations, especially when the odds seem overwhelming. I've put a couple of things in, 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 in sort of on the, on the other side of that. I'd say, first of all, uh, civilizations have faced huge challenges before. If you were a Jew in Germany in 1933, the situation was very, very bleak. But Nazism did come to an end. Uh, situations have been bleaker before. And there has been light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, secondly, as, as a Christian, we have the promises that, you know, the church is going to win at the end of time. Maybe not the American church, but Christ will win and the church will win at the end of time. And I think both of those things should stop us from despairing. It's appropriate to, to lament the situation. It's appropriate to lament the terrible human cost that the sexual revolution has brought in its wake. Uh, but lamentation should not become an excuse for us being passive in the face of these things. We need to educate our children. We need to make good arguments in the public square. Uh, and we need to hold to the truth. And the truth is that human beings have a moral nature. And ultimately, defying that goes nowhere. So I would say this is a time to lament, but it is not a time to despair. It's a time actually to, to regroup and think about a strategy as we move into the future. Dr. Carl Truman, you have given us a, a great resource for how to regroup. Let's throw that image up there of the book one more time if we can. Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Wherever you get books, go get it. You will be better for it. You need to read this book. It will help you, help you uh, be smarter and understand this and also understand what to do about it. Dr. Truman, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. You've been very kind. Thanks for having me on. Go get the book, and as you study it, remember that it is not the worst it's ever been. Uh, God is always with you. Jesus is always there. He is never surprised by what's going on. Take hope. Be of good cheer. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.